Turn to your neighbor, turn to somebody around you and say, I am blessed because you are. I, I, see, I'm one of those preachers. I'm a little bit nervous, actually, about people having say things that may not necessarily, because if you turn to somebody and say, Jesus is Lord, and it's not true in your life, that's, that's a bad thing. But here's what I know about everybody in this room today. You are blessed. So turn again with a little more conviction and say, I am blessed. I am blessed. There we go. And part of the reason you're blessed is because of the choir. Thank you, choir. Wow, what a great, wow, what a great version. What a great version of the 23rd Psalm. The Lord is my shepherd, I won't fear. What a great word for us today. We're, 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 we're going to be talking about some stuff that actually speaks into fear a bit. The mystery, right? Some people are afraid of mysteries. We have Halloween week, who knows? So, uh, I want to deal with one of your fears, right? One of the, this is probably one you didn't know you had. You got a fear of big words, right? We've been in our big words series for a while. And so when I started the research after the preaching team decided this was the approach we would take on studying the big words in Ephesians, I started studying big words. And here's one I found. Actually, I remember my daughter and son saying this word to me. Put that word up on the screen. One of the longest words in the dictionary, anti-disestablishmentarianism. It, is, uh, it goes back into the 1800s. You can kind of see the definition. But it is considered to be the longest normal word, not a technical word, not out of a, a special field or anything like that, but just in plain English, the longest word. Anti, just say it with me. Anti-disestablishmentarianism. See how smart you are today? Wow, the bar is going up around here. It's getting deep. All right. So, but there are a few words that are long. I, I love this next one. Throw up this next one for me. I can't even say this when I've practiced it several times. Phloxenalsen vilification. The act of describing something worthless. Now, you would have to create a big, long word for that. 29 letters. Some say this is the longest non-technical word. You keep, well, pastor, you keep saying non-technical words. Okay, let me show you a technical word. Put up the next one. Pneumono-ultramicroscopic silicovancanonconiosis. Yeah, I butchered that. I'm not a medical student. <laughs> Yesterday I couldn't spell it, and today I are one. Uh, yeah. And then, actually, this is my favorite one, the next one. Flumadiddle. It just means utter nonsense, which is what most of this has been, utter nonsense. Most of the kids who say, I know anti-disestablishmentarianism have no idea how it connects to the Church of England. But hey, that's just, it's just utter nonsense. It's just a long, big word. Now, so let me be clear. When, when we decided to do a series on big words, it was not because we wanted to talk about utter nonsense. It's actually quite the contrary, the very opposite of that, because as we felt led to study the book of Ephesians, one of the things we noticed as we read through it together as a preaching team was it had some big words that appeared to be utter nonsense to some people. Or even for religious people who recognize the words, understanding the idea in the biblical time in which it was written is not something that they are particularly familiar with. So we decided instead of just leaving those words alone and kind of hoping 
that people would figure out what those words mean or hoping that people understand what predestination is and what it isn't. People would understand what redemption is and what it isn't, what reconciliation is and what it isn't. We decided to really try to, to study these words. As a matter of fact, we decided, here's what we, here's what we actually decided. We wanted to demystify the religious words which is really, really convenient because today we're going to demystify mystery. The word mystery is our next big word. It's a key word. Now, you might say, well, it's not a particularly long word. No, but it's a big word. It's a big idea. It's a very important word. Now, the word mystery occurs in a number of places, but one of the beautiful ones, we're not going to study this passage today, but I just wanted to read the passage because many times you'll hear this just at a funeral, and, and that bothers me because the people of God need to be living into the truth of this verse all the time. This is 1 Corinthians 15, verses 51-52. Here's what it says, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, that is, we won't all die. But we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. That's the promise that Jesus is coming back. And when he comes back, he gathers those who follow him, who are alive, and those who have gone on. And it is a celebration. It is a great mystery. It is a great mystery. It may not be the greatest mystery. The greatest mystery is this. Uh, the strange thing that happened this week on a, on a, was it Wednesday night? Was it Thursday night? Throw up my slide for me, Clark. Yeah, the Nationals won the World Series. That could be the greatest mystery of all time. After being 19 and 31, how they pulled that up. So I just had to throw a little something. Mark, that's the part that was for you, man. All right. If I walk up to you some Sunday and I say, pay attention to the sermon, there's a part in here just for you. That's what I said to Mark this morning. He was nervous. He he, he thought I was going to talk about his personal life, but no, I wouldn't do that to you. I wouldn't poke at anybody individually. Just a little fun for all the Nats fans out there. Now, here's the fact. There are actually 19 more uses that Paul has in addition to that 1 Corinthians one that we just read. 19 more uses of the word mystery in the books that he wrote. And then there are seven more uses of the word mystery in the Gospels and in the book of Revelation, which of course were not written by Paul. But there is no place in the Bible where the use of the word mystery is more concentrated, more frequent than in our passage for today. Ephesians chapter 3, and in particular, the first portion of that. So, I'm going to read to you the first 11 verses. You follow along in your copy of the Scriptures, and you're going to put it on the screen for us. I'm going to read from the screen, if you don't mind, so I'm going to depend on you guys, all right? Here's what Paul wrote. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for you Gentiles… If indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which was given to me for you. This is, this is what he's talking about, right? This is, the, this is the, 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 the words Paul wants to take to encourage us to dive into the mystery. He says, how that by revelation he, that is God, made known to me the mystery. As I have briefly written already, by which when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, 
which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men. He's talking about the Old Testament. He's talking about in all times up until the coming of Christ. In other ages, it was not made known. The mystery was not revealed to the sons of men as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to His holy apostles and prophets, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of His promise in Christ through the gospel of which I became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effective working of His power. To me, who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. That's the every pastor's theme verse. It is a mystery. And to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God, who created all things through Jesus Christ, to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places, according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord." Now, you see, when you hear that passage, why we decided to take on this series of big words, because there was a lot of religious-sounding talk in that passage, mysteries of the ages and partakers of this, and words that we don't often use in our regular conversation. We want today to understand the mystery a bit better. Now, in Greek, the word, you got to it's mousterion. It almost sounds like a mousterion. This is the mystery of God. It is a word that means something that is known. See, because it's a mystery doesn't mean nobody knows it. No, 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 no. A mousterion is something that is known, but it is only known to the initiated, to those who have heard, to those to whom actually, to whom, how did Paul put it? To whom it has been revealed. He said, this was revealed to me. So Paul is using it here to describe something that was previously unknown. It was unrevealed. It was not yet revealed before the coming of Christ, but now it is fully revealed. And in Ephesians 3, he uses this word mystery four times. So if you want to understand what the mousterion is, what the mystery is, if you want to grasp the big idea of this word, it is vitally important to look at this passage in Ephesians. Now, three of those uses you saw in verses 2 through 6. And then there's the fourth one just a few verses later when he says in verses 9 to 11, this mystery, this, this previously unrevealed truth, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things, that now through the church the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to His purpose which He accomplished in Christ. So this is, this is the mystery. What, what is the mystery? What is the mystery? What He is saying here, if you look at it, very clearly, He's saying the mystery is that has now been revealed is that Gentiles are now full partakers along with the Jews of God's great blessings. There is no more, these are the chosen people and these are not the chosen people. Now, this is God's mystery revealed to all people. Everybody is invited. Now, you might be saying, wait, 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 wait. 
How can this be new, Pastor? How was this a new revelation? Because I seem to remember something in the Old Testament. Back when Abraham started, you are correct, verse, verse, chapter 12, verse 3 of Genesis, here's what God said to Abraham. He said, all peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. But there was still this sense that, right, the Jews are the first, and then it flows through them to the others, blessed through you. So some argue, well, God always had a plan. Even in the Old Testament, there was a way for non-Jews to come into the people of God. There was a way for those who were not born Jewish to be a part of the people of Israel. It could happen. There was a conversion process. It was absolutely understood. But, but before the coming of Christ, for a Gentile to be saved, to be a part of the people of God, they had to become a Jew first, right? That was the way to be part of the people of God, was to be a Jew. And that changes with the coming of Christ. You see, in other words, what could happen before is a Gentile could approach God he could approach the God of Israel, but a Gentile approached the God of Israel as a Jew. That's the only way. You had to convert, right? He had to become a part of the covenant people. They had a special right. You remember what it was, right? Circumcision. And so they had to be circumcised to be considered a part of the people of God. That becomes a big argument throughout the New Testament, right? When he said, look, that's no longer necessary. It's not important anymore. And it became a, quite the discussion point. So here, here's what Paul is saying. Now, the revealed mystery, the new thing, the musterion that Paul is going to talk about, this approach of having to become a Jew first, that's done, he says. That's not, it's no longer necessary. Why? We read this in Ephesians 2. So if you've got your Bible open, see, you can just look back a few verses. Why is it no longer necessary? Because Christ has torn down the dividing wall. You remember? We talked about that a lot last week, and we talked in, in, in large measure uh, about this in, in racial reconciliation terms. But it is not the only term. It is not the only sense. There was very much the religious piece. Remember again, the court for the Gentiles, the court for the women, all the separate courts that they had in the temple. And, and the Bible said Jesus tore down the dividing wall. That's what Paul is, he said, this is a mystery, but it's now revealed to us. Jesus Christ has torn it down. Jesus Christ is the way. And there is no other thing. He has made what were two peoples, those who were Jews and those who were not, into one people, he says. Both Jew and Gentile approach God equally. Now, you may be sitting there thinking today, Pastor, I, I, you say that's a mystery. I, that's pretty old news. I've, I've heard this a lot. I never thought that one people cornered the market. You, you, you need to understand, it's hard for us all these millennia later, two millennia, 2,000 years later, to recognize the shock of this. It's almost like talking to somebody who was an African-American adult in the 50s and 60s, and you talking to them about civil rights today. It, it's a whole different world, baby. And that's what the shock was. If we think that was dramatic, think about, I mean, Jew and Gentile, you built separating walls in the religious building, and the walls come down, God says. Wow. It, it's, it's a shock. It's big news. Think, look back at the very first verse of this chapter, chapter 3, verse 1. Paul says, 
I am the prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles. Um, help me remember here, what was he imprisoned for at this particular time? It was preaching that it was not necessary to be a Jew first. He, he had been pursued and he was in trouble. You can read about it in Acts 21. But it was the Jewish opposition to Paul's mission to share the gospel with the Gentiles that landed him in prison. When he says, I am a prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles, folks, he's not speaking metaphorically. He is speaking literally. He has been put in jail for it. And now the chief thing that Paul wants to say about the mystery of God making one new people in Christ is that Jew and Gentile and in other places like Colossians 3, he says, male, female, rich, poor, slave, free. He just starts listing categories. And I just, you know, would say to you right now, whatever categories you've got in your head, good people, not such good people. Straight people. Gay people. I mean, we have all kinds of categories, and we want to limit the grace of God. Uh, folks, I don't know all the mysteries of the world. I don't know all of them, but I know this mystery. And God has broken down a wall and said, everybody is welcome to come to me. How he does it, I don't know. How he made room for me, I do not understand. But he did. And here's the amazing thing, and why we need to be very, very careful folks. When I say careful, I kind of mean don't do it, but if you're going to do it, you better be very, very careful. When people start judging one another for the clothes they wear, the color of the skin, the music they like, the this, the that, the other thing. Because what Paul is saying is, we don't just, when he tears down the dividing wall, it's not just so that everybody individually can come to Jesus. It's so that we can all be together with Jesus. It's, there's a reason we call it communion, everybody together. Community, a faith community, the people of God. We don't emphasize the person of God so much. It's the people of God. We hold this blessing together. What good does it do to tear down the dividing wall if I'm going to stand over here by myself? I mean, that, that makes no sense whatsoever. Paul is trying to emphasize our togetherness. And this is more striking in the original Greek Bible than it is in English because in the Greek Bible, you can see the, the construction. It's almost like reading an English poem when the words rhyme, okay? You can kind of tell what's coming next. And what Paul does in the Greek is he uses this word, this parallel expression that keeps repeating. And I'm going to invite you to look at your scriptures, and you'll see these phrases. He says, we are heirs together with Israel. We are members together of one body. And we are sharers together in the promise of Christ Jesus. So if you're a note taker, very quickly, we're going to hit three things for you on your note page there. And these are three aspects of the great mystery of God. I'm going to see at the end, I'm going to see if you've caught the theme. So be prepared. This is, there will be a quiz at the end. Okay. So here's number one. We are heirs together with Israel. Okay. Heirs together with Israel. Now, the word heir, the inheritor, that's an important word for Paul. 
rather than talk about it myself and try to convince you that it was, I want you to hear what Paul wrote in some other verses. Listen to Romans 4.13. It was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be the heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. So now we understand how we inherit righteousness that comes through faith. Romans 8.17. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs. In other words, if you're a, a child of God, you are an inheritor of God heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in His sufferings in order that we may also share in His glory. Galatians 3, which is a great passage on um, being God's people together, he says, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. You see what he did there, right? Those two groups that were separate, he said, oh, no, 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 if you were one, you are now the other. We are all together. We are heirs together according to the promise. And then this longer passage, but listen to it carefully, Galatians 4, 1 through 7. What I'm saying is that as long as an heir is under age, he's no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. The heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also when we were under age, and he's using the underage language as a way of talking about us being under the law, before the gospel, before the coming of Jesus Christ, and for us to fully understand grace and mercy given by him on the cross. He says, so also when we were under age, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are His children, God sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, and the Spirit cries out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are His child, God has made you also and heir. We are together the inheritors. Not, it's not about the big individual emphasis. It says if we're the children of God, we are the inheritors together. You see, these verses that I've just read all embrace the idea that everything a person receives, everything that a person will receive in salvation, is, it's, it's a gift from God, and it is the whole of God's blessing that comes on us, and it is possessed jointly by all God's children. See, I don't own salvation. I share in it with you. We share in God's salvation together. So here, here's what, I, why is that important? You ever, you ever known a group of people, there was an inner circle and an outer circle? So the Jews thought they were the inner circle and the Gentiles were the outside. And what Paul is saying here, and remember, Paul is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So God is saying this through Paul. There is no inner or outer circle amongst those who have been saved by God. There is no, this group is first-rate Christians and this group is second-rate Christians or vice versa. All who are in Christ inherit all of God's blessing, and we inherit it jointly together. We hold the inheritance together in the one body of Jesus Christ. Long-term member, new member, we hold it together. That doesn't matter. Nothing separate. We are together, heirs together. All right, second point. We are members together, the Bible says, of one body. 
So we're not just joint heirs, but we are members together of one body. Ephesians 1, back in that first chapter, verses 22 and 23, God placed all things under his feet and appointed him, that is Jesus, to be head over everything for the church, which is his body. The church is the body of Christ, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Saying we are in that body together. In chapter 4, verse 4, Paul returns to that same theme. He says there is one body. All right, quick check. How many bodies? One. One body. And he goes on to describe how God has built us into this single body. Now, folks, I understand the image he's using is based on the mystical union possessed by God's people, the mystery, the mystical union. It is a spiritual thing that God does. I absolutely get that. But here's the thing. Those of you who are in, and I know not everybody in here is married, but for those who are married, becoming one. Remember that thing the guys always say at the, you know, the pastors always say, now the two are become one. That's easy, isn't it? No, no. no. Uh, I say, if any man said yes, I'd have to say you failed husbandry 101 because uh, yeah, it's, it's hard work. Learning to be a married couple is hard work. Being one is hard work, and you do it if you're lucky enough to get married in your 20s. You do it in your 20s, and you keep doing it in your 30s, and your 40s, and your 50s, and your 60s. And Clara told me for sure it's happening for Alice in his 70s. And so, I mean, you know, building unity, building unity is hard work. Amen, Brother Allison. Amen. So, why do we think it's easy in the church? It's not. It's not a sin for it to be hard work, but we got to work hard at it. Your marriage is not a wreck if you're working hard at it. It just means you got to work hard at it. That's all it means. So let's work harder at loving one another and being the body of Christ together. That's how it happens. It does not happen by accident, okay? Third thing we do together. We are sharers together in the promise of Christ Jesus. Now, the Bible's got a lot of promises, but there is a specific sense of this word promise that is re related to this uh, promise of redemption, this being the people of God that we're talking about today. So, in Galatians 3.14, it says, He, God, redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus. Does that sound familiar? That sounds like what we just read in Ephesians. We're bringing two people to be one so that by faith we might receive the promise of God. How do we get the promise? By faith. It brings the two together to one. Galatians 3, 19, why was the law given at all? It was added because of the transgressions until the seed, that is Jesus, to whom the promise referred had come. The law was given through the angels and entrusted to a mediator. What he's saying there is, look, the law is a thing we were talking about earlier about being underage, right? There's a learning problem. We were under the law. But then in Galatians 3.22, it says, but Scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin so that what was promised being given through faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. So in other words, previously, we were under the law. We were locked down. We were stuck. What does the Bible say? You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Did you know that coffins have locks on them? Isn't that odd? Little latches, close them up, seal them up. We're dead 
and we're still locked up. That's what the Bible says was happening spiritually. We were locked up in our sins. We were locked up under the law. But Jesus comes to bring freedom to those who believe. And in verse 29 of Galatians 3, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, Abraham's seed, and heirs according to the promise. So we are sharers together. The promise that Jesus gave to set us free and to redeem us is ours, and it's for all of us, and we hold it together. We are sharers together. So let me wrap this up. The Bible is not saying here that this belongs to everybody in some kind of vague universal brotherhood of all mankind. Do not hear me preaching that today. What he's saying is everyone who will come to Christ, there's no, there's no inners and outers. It's, you, the ground is level at the foot of the cross is the way we used to say that. You know, the ground is level. We all stand together. It, it is, it, we're all in the same boat. We are all lost without him and we are found by him and with him. It is Jesus who has broken down the wall and brought us together. Now, so here's the quiz I told you was coming at the end. You can use the blanks to clue you in. What was the theme of the passage that we are together, together, together? That is what Paul is trying to quit being divided. And it's funny, Paul is saying, look, I, nobody's going to magically fix this for you. You need to stop doing that. You know what I'm saying? Jesus has already resolved it. Now live like it. Live like it. Jesus can do the work. He'd already done the work, but Paul is trying to convince the Ephesians to live into that. This is the mystery. So here's the thing. You've heard me say this many times. Paul never got over being saved. I, I think there's another thing that Paul never got over, and I think he never got over his wonder at the doctrine of the church, what it means to be a part of the body of Christ. He continually remained surprised that God had called him to be a part of his people and to walk and live that life together and share that life and share that love with one another. Now, we are not all apostles like Paul was. We have not received a new revelation from the Holy Spirit to write down for God's people. But here's the good news. It is as if afresh, God has removed the scales from our eyes and we see who we are in Him. The revelation of the mystery. We are not two. We are not Africans and Europeans and South Americans and North Americans. We are not. We are one people in Christ Jesus. This is the mystery. We are the same. And one of the ways we're getting ready to take this supper together one of the ways that we declare, proclaim, and live into God's promise is that we share these symbols of the broken body and shed blood of Christ that declare the mystery of the one who gave his life on the cross. He died in my place when I was a couple thousand years away. It is a mystery of God. It is amazing what he's done. And it also is a declaration of our togetherness because we come together he said, when you gather, share this supper, share the meal, and remember together. And so today, as we partake of the supper together, and if you're here today, you're a follower of Jesus Christ, we invite you, wherever your church membership might be, to partake of the Lord's meal with us, because it's His meal for His body. 
And as we take it, we declare the mystery that we are all together in Christ.